Three, two, one. Hi, and welcome to Global Institute of Wealth podcast. Tonight, my guest wants to remain anonymous, and he comes from the financial education background. Uh, welcome, Mr. Anonymous. Thanks so much. Glad to be here, Bana. What can we discuss tonight? We can discuss anything. We can discuss uh, what's happening in the world, in the finance world, what's happening in the markets, uh, whatever you want to discuss. The ball is in your court. Okay, so we're now in February 2022, and uh, you know Russia's moving towards Ukraine, and I saw the news saying that America is going to put sanctions on Russia, and that they froze three. Russian bank accounts of ultra high net worth individuals. And that uh, really triggered or intrigued me that America has a power of freezing people's bank accounts. And then just a week ago, the truckers in Canada that were striking, uh, their bank accounts got frozen by the Canadian government. I think we rather just start there because people want to hear and I want to hear what's going on now and let's take the conversation from there. Yeah, like, you know, I always think of it like the US, the United States of America have the biggest weapon, um, which is control of the money. Um, they have a monopoly on money that the US dollar is the most dominant currency in the world. Uh, most countries need it for trade. And they also have control of um, the largest payments network in the world for international transfers, which is the SWIFT network. So, you know, often they flex their muscle and threaten to, you know, put sanctions on a country to remove them from the network. And, you know, at times, you know, I, I don't know if it's ever appropriate to do that because the moment you do that, you're not only cutting off their government from accessing money, but also the people in that country who are most of the time innocent people they just want to get on with their life. Um, so it's never fair. It's never justified. And I think people, some people who are paying attention to what's going on, to see seeing what's happening in Canada with freezing of accounts of uh, the Freedom Convoy and freezing the Russians' accounts, you know, people are paying attention. They're realizing the money that you have, it's not really yours. You know, if you one day come into a position where you have different political views than whoever's in power, you know, yeah. your money is not guaranteed. And um, it, it's quite scary. The world's moving towards more chaos, more volatility. Um, I don't think it's going to calm down and, and go back to the, the, the normal we had in the past. Um, you know, it's some of the organizations with a lot of power in the world, like the World Economic Forum have outright stated that they don't want to return to a new normal. They want to return to this. I mean, they want to build, have this great reset. They want everyone to be, uh, have a digital ID, have a social credit, course, credit score system. 
if you misbehave, if you have the wrong political views, you are going to be outcast, you're going to be shut off from the network, um, you won't be able to access your money, you're not going to be able to buy food. That's the plan of some of these organizations. And, you know, it sounds, it sounds a bit conspiracy theory, but if you go and go look at the World Economic Forum website, you'll find this information there for you. Um, so even though it sounds absurd, it's a reality and anyone who just dismisses it without sort of looking for themselves is mm. going to be doing themselves a disservice. So I think, you know, the time is creeping up upon us where what we thought was going to happen in movies is actually happening in current day situations. Okay. Uh, COVID-19, which hit us hard in 2020, has changed the world forever. Okay. Uh, the way people interact, the way they communicate. Uh, and I see travel has changed. Uh, the way people spend time on Netflix nowadays, people spend time gaming nowadays, be it the youth. Where do you see the world heading? And what are the problems and the solutions that we can discuss? Uh, but let's talk from a monetary point of view, kind of, uh, if we may give it that guidelines. Yeah, look, we live in the digital world. Um, everything has been trending towards digitization over time. We have our social interactions moving to the digital world. I mean, this conversation we're having right now is happening over the internet. Um, we have software like music moving to the digital world. Yeah. You know, we used to, okay, like obviously before we had like live music, we have radios, that sort of thing. Now it's all on the internet, Spotify, um, movies. We used to go to the movies, to the bioscope to watch movies. Now it's um, on the internet, Netflix, it's all in our pockets. It's obvious that money, which was, you know, historically like a physical um, substance, physical commodity, it's also been digitized. I mean, we already have digital money. Everyone who has bank accounts, does online banking, has dealt with a uh, form of digital money. Yeah. And now it's just trending further into the digital realm. So either, you know, in terms of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, Mm. Or on the other end of the extreme is central bank digital currencies. So everyone's future is going to consist of one or the other. And, you know, we all have a choice to make. Um, at some point, they're going to do away with physical cash mm. because it's, it's very difficult for them to have uh, financial surveillance on things like physical cash, which is why in some countries you have limits um, on, on how much you can physically spend on an item if you're paying with cash. Um, even if you're moving money out the country, there's limits on how much you can move physically, um, that sort of thing. So tight controls on that, it's only going to get worse. Um, and yeah, the choice is CBDCs or Bitcoin, pretty much. I think what pitch is coming to mind is um, like 
like how you would say someone wants to live off the grid, meaning they don't want to use a municipality's electricity and water and be uh, off the grid remote. Uh, from a financial point of view, there's a risk being uh, in the current financial system where, uh, as you said, the US government or all governments and have control over your bank accounts and can freeze it. And what was interesting is a few nights ago, I was printing some research and development. And in 2015, not long ago, when Greece was going through a financial crisis, they froze people's bank accounts and then they allowed them to only withdraw something like $200 a day. So even if you had worked your whole life, had $2 million in your bank account or 3 million or 5 million, 10 million, whatever the number was, it was dictated to you what access of your own hard-earned labor and funds you could. And that must be a really shitty low point in your life if that has to ever happen. Think about that. You work your entire life, might be 60 years old. You're living in 2015, you know, modern day era. And, and a government tells you can only take out $200. Yeah, it's, it's the equivalent of being in the stone age uh, in monetary uh, in the monetary aspect, because it's, yeah, as you said, some people would have worked their whole lives to earn that money. Let's say it's a million dollars. Um, and if you've been dictated, you know, due to fears of a bank run that you can only withdraw $200 a day, I mean, is that money really yours? Um, and we've seen cases of um, people's wealth which they obviously worked their whole life to acquire being um, hyperinflated away in the span of a few years or months or even days. So it's not something that many people think about, but a lot of people are going to think about it probably when it's too late. And, and that's a bit, it's a bit scary because no one wants to see harm befall another human being um you know which is why i think you have this company the global institute of wealth you want to teach people about the importance of preserving or being aware of of these sorts of things because um you know you, you use your wealth to protect your family to protect yourself you know and there's, there's nothing more important in anyone's life than protecting their family and themselves. I, I couldn't agree more with you. And I think that's where this journey in 2020, 2021 has brought me to the stage where we're actually trying to do a soft launch of Global Institute of Wealth and the slogan being uh, preserving wealth for future generations. It took us a long time to get to this and uh, digging really, really deep in, in, in what is our purpose. And uh, it actually started from a personal journey, find, thinking, you know, uh, especially having COVID, I was in hospital and thinking, you know, what is it that we come to work for? You know, why do you wake up every morning, get to work, to what? It's not just to make money. Money is something that can come and go. Uh, it's actually preserving wealth for future generations. And wealth sometimes is not just uh, rands and dollars. It could be education as well, knowledge, uh, you know, teaching someone how to eat healthy. That could be wealth transfer. But 
our focus would want to be, let's use it on the monetary system. Uh, that's the primary consulting we're going to do. But let, let's, let's just relax and sit back and have an easier conversation. How crazy must it be to live in a place like Venezuela? I mean, I would love to bring someone on our podcast and have a conversation with someone from Venezuela and go, how the hell do you live with 470% inflation year on year? Okay. Uh, and it's just going to increase. It didn't get to 470, uh, you know, in one day. It obviously was at a certain percent, probably they were at 10% at a certain year, date and time. I don't have that info, but we can call that up. But I mean, currently, uh, I had a graph on my phone and let me see if I can just pull up that graph, okay? Um, screenshots. I'm gonna share this with you. It's quite, quite interesting. Okay, here, here it is, okay? This graph shows me that Venezuela is at 472% inflation. Argentina is coming out second at 50%. I mean, imagine if you're buying a car for a million rand and next year the exact same cars, 50% more, right? Uh, Turkey is at 48%. I mean, these are big countries with huge populations, okay? You and I, could have been living in Venezuela. You and I could have been in Argentina. We could have been in Turkey. I actually know a few people in Turkey. Okay, then uh, I'm a partner in a company called 5,000 Miles and a shareholder. We have an office in Brazil. Okay, and Brazil's got 10.4% inflation, according to this graph. And all these graphs, I can tell you, are never accurate. You can add another uh, 25 to 30% or 50% sometimes to what the CPI says on, uh, you know, online. So how crazy must it be to live in Venezuela? What do you think? You know, I, I can't even begin to uh, imagine what life is like living it under hyperinflation. I mean, we have, you know, a decent amount of inflation, but relatively our life is pretty, it's pretty, um, normal. Um, I think in a lot of the hyperinflation countries, you get people looking for harder money. Uh, as soon as you get paid, and whether if it's bolivars or, or Turkish leaves, you, you go to the shop, buy your groceries for the month as quick as possible, because in some places, the inflation is happening so quickly that by the time you enter the shop and, and the time you're leaving the shop, the prices are increasing. Yes. So it's it's nuts. I, I even read a little story. I can't remember the details, but um, someone bought a coffee and, uh, you know, later they decided to order another cup. And when, when presented with a the bill, they asked, why is it so expensive? And the shopkeeper told them, if you want to have two cups of coffee, just order two at the start and it'll be cheaper. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so why are you sitting... There's inflation happening while you're sitting in the coffee shop. Exactly. You know, markets never sleep. And uh, if inflation is high, you've got to do what you've got to do to survive. And, and some people without, you know, some people might not have economic backgrounds or have looked at the stuff in, in, you know, intensively. They might think, oh, why are companies rising their prices, raising their prices and they're being greedy, but that's almost always not the case. 
they're raising their prices because this their cost of goods is increasing they have bills to pay they have rent to pay um, raw materials stuff like that so as all of that rises their selling price also needs to rise mm. and it's it's very easy to sit back and say oh corporations are greedy now of course there are some corporations that are greedy but if they raise their price too much that just leaves them open to being undercut by another um, competitor so you know it's it's very nuanced and uh, it's not as binary as things are in sometimes made out in the in the you, world you, you mentioned i'm going to stop you there but you mentioned if you get paid in venezuela and we're putting ourselves in that shoe. So say you get paid an X amount, you'd want to quickly convert it to a harder money. Let's talk about that topic, harder money. Okay, let's make that a topic of discussion for now. And I would just quickly jump to the conclusion, if someone earns a local currency in Venezuela, they might want to convert it to US dollars, which is a harder money, okay? And let's shoot the gun here now. There's also huge inflation happening in america currently so what would a would an american person do when they're getting paid hundred thousand dollars for a certain contract in their business by them leaving hundred thousand us dollars in the bank you could buy example a certain property for that value okay but next year that hundred thousand will not be enough for that same property okay and currently the, in America showing higher inflation rates than even South Africa, okay? So US is showing 7.5% inflation. That's even higher than Mexico, Spain, South Africa, New Zealand, India, right? So talk to me about what makes a harder money and what would someone in America be doing with his dollars trying to beat inflation? Okay, so the concept of, of money and, and its hardness relates to how easy it is to create new units of it. So think of it as a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, you have soft money. So let's call it monopoly money. You know, anyone can just print out monopoly money in their printer. Yeah. Um, and then as we move further, um, along the scale to the right, we have maybe something like Zimbabwe dollars, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, then maybe other third world country currency, which um, might be printed a lot, especially during hyperinflationary times. They sometimes have to print to, you know, keep paying the debts and that sort of thing. Um, but if you move further along the spectrum, you get to something like the US dollar, which even though it's inflating um, and there's a lot of money printing happening, it's, it's still, there's still a high level of demand for it. So, you know, it gets sort of absorbed by the market. And then if you go even further along the hard money spectrum, you have something like Bitcoin or even, okay, let's let's assume gold is money, um, even though it's like impractical. Let's call, it, let's call it a store of value rather, okay? Yeah. Uh, so gold is a store of value on this, on this hard money spectrum. Um, it's harder than the US dollar in the sense that there's a limited amount of it. 
it can't be printed willy-nilly, like changing numbers in a database. It has to be physically mined out the ground. Right. But we also know that as the price of that goes up, gold miners can just ramp up operations and start harvesting more gold from the ground. Yes. Yes. So it's not the hardest money. And then we move on to like a new technology. Uh, it's been around for 12 or 13 years now, Bitcoin. So everyone knows um, 21 million Bitcoin. That's how much they will ever be. Um, and, you know, so that draws a line in the sand in terms of how hard the money is. It can't be created like there's no entity, even if you have mining power, you can't just create new Bitcoin without doing the work. So the work is um, relates to proof of work, which means you are using that computational power on your, on your mining rigs, or your, back in the day, it was a laptop or a GPU in a computer. Um, and you're using that energy to solve hash functions, basically. If you think of, you know, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to pause you there, right? I, I follow you, but let's say the average person out there, they they're going to get a bit lost now. So let's just first finish this first conversation. You've got a country like Venezuela on one side of the spectrum with 470 percent inflation. We had on the left of it, I would say something more extreme like Zimbabwe. Like I had a, uh, a note, and here's one example of a note from Zimbabwe. This note says $200,000 on one note, on or before 30th June, 2008. There's even a date here, okay? And uh, if you give me a minute, I'm just gonna fetch another note which would really surprise you. Give me a minute. Okay, now it's getting interesting. I got a note in front of me, right? And this note says $5 billion. One note, $5 billion. Okay, so let's put this, to me, in my knowledge, the most extreme hyperinflation that I ever saw. And, and interesting enough, I know you might know this or not, but for the listeners out there, that the difference between inflation and hyperinflation is when inflation hits something above 50%, then you call it hyperinflation. And Zimbabwe went through hyperinflation. Venezuela is going through, I would say, something like hyperinflation at the moment. So then as you go down the extreme, uh, down the sphere, you start losing the hyper because when you get below 50%, now there's just inflation. And you can go right down to certain countries that got zero, uh, you know, inflation. Like, let's use a country like Japan. They had 0.8%, okay? Now we were talking about the hardness of money. So I would say this uh, Zimbabwe dollar, is nothing hard about it, okay? The, as a store of value, it's not, not a good store of value. Probably uh, it's not even worth the paper it's printed on, okay? You know the joke, people say, oh, you can use it as toilet paper. Literally, that's what happens. So when you're going down the spectrum from a country's money 
right? A note like Zimbabwe, then you go Venezuela and you start coming down. You start moving from hyperinflation into inflation. And then you all these countries on the line and we're getting back to a store of value and a hard money, okay? So now you come to gold. Gold takes a lot of effort to print. Uh, I mean, not to print. You can't print gold. You mine gold, right? But to print US dollars has become so easy nowadays, okay? Uh, what has happened, what we've seen in COVID, that they just go and put the printer on and they print seven, eight, 13 trillion dollars and they pump it into the market. So every time the printer is on, it actually weakens the currency. Am I right? Yes, uh, 100% right. Um, although most of the, when they say printing money, a lot of it is just, editing numbers on the database, like uh, a small yes. get printed, yes. but uh, it's just the analogy we use. It's just opening a computer and putting some more zeros. Pretty much. Right. So um, let's say they've gone and printed this 10 to 20 trillions of dollars in the last few years. Uh, and now we get to gold, gold being some commodity or an asset class that takes a lot of energy to mine, okay? Now let's compare gold to something new like Bitcoin and you're saying scarcity, okay? Uh, talk, talk to me about scarcity between gold, uh, fiat and Bitcoin. So on, on, the, on the one end, we have fiat currencies, which I would say aren't scarce because as we've seen over the past few, Yes, they can just print more of it if, if they need to. Then we have a more scarce asset, gold. Um, although, you know, you also have to look at the demand side. How many people or how many normal people own gold? Not many. Mm. It's mostly more experienced investors or high net worth individuals. Um, but the average person doesn't own gold, doesn't probably doesn't know how to even go about owning gold. And uh, if they do own gold, they probably own certificates which represent gold. So they don't even own physical gold. So there's not, I mean, there, there is obviously a high level of demand for gold globally, but whereas something like Bitcoin, anyone with a phone could theoretically download an app and buy Bitcoin. So that potential demand worldwide is much greater uh, in my view than, than the demand for gold. Um, Maybe I'll add uh, the barrier to entry is very, exactly. very low compared to entering the gold market. Someone that's got 100 Rand or 200 Rand or $100 can enter into the Bitcoin sphere or space much easier than entering into the gold, physical gold space. Definitely. And that's one of the huge draw points. Um, it's for everyone. Like Bitcoin is literally money designed for every single person okay. or corporate or, or any, any thing that wants to use money. Um, so, you know, with a normal bank account, you need to have an ID, you need to, you know, be a resident of so-and-so country, you need to be of a certain age. Mm. With Bitcoin, literally, if you're four years old and you know how to use Bitcoin, mm. 
they, they would they could be four-year-olds who do know how to use Bitcoin, um, then you can own a wallet. You can send money across the world to another four-year-old, theoretically, um, which is something we never had before. Yeah. And it's as easy as, I mean, we've, we've all seen kids nowadays playing on the iPads and, uh, you know, FaceTiming uh, relatives and that sort of thing. So how far off are we from seeing them have a little um, piggy bank, digital piggy bank? Yeah, that's interesting. That's, that's a reality that we live in now. Like uh, there could be a time where for Christmas or for Eid or, you know, when you give a little bit of money to the kids, you can just give them it digitally. And if they pass the marshmallow test, if yeah. they can uh, not spend it and wait for the future, their, their Bitcoin will be worth a lot more and um, they'd be a lot happier for it. That's interesting. The marshmallow test, uh, I think as adults, we also have to go through that test nowadays. Yeah, I mean, there's companies out there who just want to entice you into spending money. Literally, almost if you go out your house, you're listening to the radio, there's adverts. Oh, buy this. Yeah. Where it is, this alcohol or this uh, packet of chips or, you know, whatever it is. If you go to the mall, they're trying to sell you something. There's always yeah. discount. They're incentivizing it. So those are all forms of the marshmallow test, I suppose. Um, yeah. What, I mean, obviously I'm not saying people should not spend money. You have to spend money to live life. And um, I think it's just a bit wiser to spend money on things that are more needed and essential than I, just spend frivolously. So I, I, I had this theory that a lot of the times if you don't know something exists, you'll never want it, okay? And uh, opening the newspaper and seeing something for the very first time being advertised to you then plants a seed in your brain. And sometimes, I think from a marketing point of view, if you see it about seven times, they say on average, then you start, you, you can't forget it, okay? So anything new, let, let's call, just use a trend example, like uh, they had these shoes that light up or the shoes with wheelies underneath it, okay? If you never knew it exists, no kid wanted it. The moment kids know it exists, they all want it, okay? Uh, but now let's just go back to this whole thing about scarcity. So, you know, the demand of something that's scarce will always outperform something that's not scarce, okay? I'm hopping back to our store of value where we, where we were two minutes ago. And uh, I think the scarcity of Bitcoin being 21 million coins, having features like being divisible, where gold is not divisible, okay? Uh, people need to be educated on this, that what makes a good money? What makes a hard money? And there's certain characteristics. So... I know we're going to have more episodes in the coming week, but let's just touch on those topics. And then maybe in the future, uh, in the next few weeks, we could cover these characteristics that make a hard money and a good store of value. And then we can delve into it. 
Sure. So, so there's quite, depending on where you look, there's, uh, and which sort of monetary approaches you take, um, there's many characteristics of money. I don't think there's just five. It could be a lot broader than that, depending, but let's, let's okay. boil it five. Right. Five characteristics of money. So those characteristics are, for example, um, saleability, durability, um, divisibility, fungibility, and what's the last one? Um, so you said scalability, I mean, uh, divisibility. Yeah. Transferability. Scarcity. scarcity. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I'm just looking at the, the Bitcoin.org website. It says durability, portability, fungibility. Take, take, take us through uh, each of them. Just give us a small one minute brief on each of them. So durability is how durable your money is. Uh, for example, at some point in, in history, people used um, salt as money or, right. or, or sticks, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So salt is not the most durable thing. It might be work as money for like a short space of time, but if you're going to keep that in your cupboard for a long time, it's probably not the greatest store of, of money. Understood. So, or low on the durability test, where something like gold, which is quite a, a strong metal, um, much more durable than salt. Then we have something like portability. Um, hmm. So physical cash, like paper notes, quite portable. You can put some notes in your pocket, you can go to the store. Great. Um, if you're buying a house, you know, you're probably going to need quite a bit of paper notes. Might be a bit uh, impractical. And then if you're paying in something like gold, it's going to be a lot more impractical because no one wants to cart around gold bars to pay for things. Can you imagine that? Going to buy a house with physical gold. <laughs> I'm trying yeah, to visualize this. <laughs> you'd have to visualize like uh, Barney Rubble from Flintstones or something yeah. just chugging it around. True. Then we have uh, something uh, called fungibility. So fungibility is um, each unit of that money is equal to another unit of that money. Okay. So example, if you had um, like each bar of gold, if it's authentic gold, yeah. is equal to another bar of gold. Yeah. Whereas something like if you're using seashells as money as some um ancient there's no standard uh, yeah, unit of measurement i would say yeah there's different size shells there's there's different styles of shells so it's it's not very fungible yeah you, you can't, can't you can't price your car in shells or you can't buy, uh, price your house in shells i mean yeah, you don't know it how, makes how... The, it makes the accounting very difficult but 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 funny on that it's like, I find diamonds are like that or rubies or whatever. I mean, you could hold a diamond and tell me, listen, I'll give you this diamond. You give me your car. Your car's worth, uh, you know, uh, half a million rand. I can't compare one diamond to another. It's just too many. Yeah. It's not fungible. It's not standard. Whereas like one ounce of gold is one ounce of gold. I can go online, check what's the price of ounce of gold and 
converted the matrix uh, into uh, the unit matrix I'm talking about of my car and tell you, listen, my car is worth five ounces of gold. And then you come with the five ounces. But uh, yeah, that's fungibility, you say. So let me throw a curveball into your, into your story. What if you're selling it for five ounces of gold and I come there with the gold? Now, do you know if I have real gold or fake gold? Like, how do you, how are you going to? I, I wouldn't know. I'm, I'm, I'd have to take it to someone to verify. Then I'd, I'd have to pay them to verify it. So there's cost. I wouldn't know if I could trust them, number two. Number three, do you know what's clipping? In the old days, they used to have clipping on the coins. Okay. Yeah. So they reduce the quality of the metal. Yeah. So in the old days, when they had these coins, like in the Romans times, they decided if they could clip a piece of metal, tiny piece of metal of each coin, like let's say a hundred coins or a thousand coins, they'd be left with all these clippings which could be melted and made into new coins. Okay. So they were stealing fractions, like let's just call it 1% or 2% to 3% of the coins. Uh, that's another problem when you've got physical coins. Yeah, that's, that's actually a, a great point. Um, and that whole concept you just described, where they're stealing 1%, 2%, that's what money printing is. It's coin clipping, but in the digitally. modern world. Digitally. Yeah, like digitally. So that's a great analogy for our, our listeners to, to have uh, something to compare money printing to. Yeah. So moving, moving on to the characteristics, uh, scarcity is another characteristic. We discussed that one at length, so I won't go into it. Divisibility. So divisibility is, I mean, we all know a gold bar can be melted down and subdivided into smaller units, into Krugerrands and all sorts of other gold coins. But there is a limit. Um, you can't go really small. Um, because it becomes, you're going to start paying people with like grains of gold. It's just not going to work. Whereas you have something like Bitcoin where it's subdivisible to one Satoshi. So each Bitcoin is made up of a hundred million Satoshis. You can think of the Satoshis as cents, but it's a lot more valuable than cents. But one Satoshi is a fraction of a cent. So yeah. what this technology allows people is basically to stream sats. Have you ever thought of streaming money to someone? Because now you can do something like that. Mm. There's, there's some podcasts- With, Without there. the loss of value. So it's a basically saying we could transfer value over, over the internet at the speed of light. Okay, so we've got speed because of fiber and, and that. So you're transferring money anywhere in the world, instantly, I would say, like under 10 minutes. But yet, the person on the other side receives 100% of the same value. There's no clipping, no, no fees, no drop. Yes, there might be minute fees for networks, but I'm talking about uh, no loss. And you could do this in, as you're saying, in this mini, in these Satoshis, right? So... Imagine if you had to send someone one-tenth of an ounce of gold. It's not worth you even sending it to them. I mean, the amount of fees and uh, transport costs you're going to pay and security. 
Yeah, it's it's just not practical. And then they're going to have to authenticate it and see if it's actual gold or if it's fool's gold. You know, it's just too much work. Whereas the Bitcoin on the network, what everyone mining and running nodes are doing is pretty much authenticating the authenticity of each Bitcoin every second that it's running. So you can think of it likening, you know, like how in the old days you had goldsmiths who would look at gold and tell you, okay, this is 98% quality gold. It's worth so much. That whole process is now done electronically mm. with the software and that's happening all the time. So every 10 minutes. If you have, a, not even every 10 minutes, like every second, because people are running nodes and there's browsers on the internet which you can go and look at the network statistics. Mm -hmm. So every second there's these electronic goldsmiths in the metaverse working for you. Yeah, yeah, I understand. And supporting uh, your I, I like I like how you describe it. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's a so it's such a new technology and people are learning so much about it no one can say they know everything about it because there's some of the people i follow on twitter who are like bitcoin developers and early pioneers even they are learning every day about it so it's 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 growing at such a rapid rate and it's such a unexplored market that it's the most exciting advancement in money in centuries, probably, in, in humanity. Like, mm. I read an article that likened it to one of the biggest advents in money since the double entry accounting principle, um, which occurred in wherever, somewhere in Venice or Italy or somewhere in that side of the world. In, and, and I guess I guess the invent of numbers itself, you know. Yeah, that's that was also a big one, I'm sure. And uh, it's actually quite fascinating how all of that evolved to this point in time. Yeah, we uh, did all of it to happen. At the end of the day, all computer programs boil down to zeros and ones. That's right. Huh? Everything. Everything we're seeing on our screens right now is just a series of zeros. Crazy and ones. to think about it. <laughs> the whole matrix is it's, made out of zeros and ones. It's quite crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know what would be interesting uh, for the future podcast as well, because we're limited with time today, but we should explore the cost uh, of companies like of moving money for people. So let's say Mexican people. Uh, working in USA, okay. Uh, I I can't remember it clearly right now, but they there's so much money being sent from workers that are Mexican to send their money back home to their families in Mexico. There's so much uh, besides the money moving from South Africa to people in Malawi. So if I've got a Malawian garden boy and he has to move money to his family, there's a cost that takes place. So I in fact asked my garden boy the other day. I said, "Listen, how much do you pay?" And he says, he, there's a system, uh, I, I need to try it out myself, but there's an app and then they get this SMS 
and they go to pick and pay. And if they give a thousand rand, they charge them 50 rand for moving that money across. And in under an hour, his family gets the money in Malawi. So the, the speed seems to be relatively quick. They're not taking three days. Like if I have to pay someone in America or Hong Kong and that money goes through the banking system, it has to go to Chase Manhattan Bank in New York and get verified and cleared with the SWIFT, uh, you know, all that process. And by the time it reaches someone in Hong Kong could take anything from three days to a week, okay? So there's this new technology for, let's call it the, the lower LSM working class people that are foreigners in foreign countries. So Mexicans working in USA, Malawians or Nigerians working in South Africa, okay? There's this 5% fee of sending money uh, using things like this M-Pesa and uh, Western Union and stuff like this, okay? I think going forward, we should touch on this topic. How much money Western Union makes on just these fees? Or how much money does M-Pesa make just on these fees? And how Bitcoin eliminates this entire cost going forward, okay? Yeah, so, so those... Those types of transfers you described um, are referred to as remittances, and it's a huge multi-billion dollar industry. So banks basically make tons of money off really poor people trying to support their families. Mm. Um, and it's, it's actually quite, they take advantage of it at times. And I've read reports where it's in excess of 15, 18, 20%, sometimes depending on how much you're sending and where you're sending it to. So it's actually quite sickening what they get away with. And I'm glad something like Bitcoin exists now um, to help those people. Um, the problem is that a lot of people aren't aware of Bitcoin or still think of it as, you know, some sort of Ponzi scheme. People aren't really fully educated on it. And even people who have um, the means of being educated, they have the internet, they have uh, access to social networks, to, to education, even they are unaware of what's going on. So a lot of people are going to learn maybe later on, once they reaches a critical point. Let's say you, Muhammad Bana, don't know about Bitcoin, but as soon as you see, say, five of your 15 circle of friends, group of friends, as soon as five of them start talking about Bitcoin, you're going to think, hey, maybe it's safe for me to, like, you know, they, they've done the work. They said it's okay. Maybe I should use Bitcoin. So a lot of people have that herd mentality and will only get on board once they have that social consensus that it's okay to use. Mm. Um, but we know this day and age, things move quickly. People could change their mind very quickly. And, you know. So I, so I think uh, the way the macroeconomists put it, people like Raul Paul, they call it Metcalf's Law, uh, Game Theory, the Adoption Curve. These are the titles they give it. And simply put, like, I mean, 
almost everyone heard, uh, uh, ev almost everyone nowadays has a cell phone. There was a time when every fifth person had a cell phone, okay? There was a time when not everyone had Netflix at all. And it's just a matter of time when adoption takes place. And we do know in this modern day, right, uh, we at the cutting edge of technology, we at the cutting edge of speed of internet. And uh, the, do you know the phone we hold in our hand has more processing plant, uh, I mean, processing power than the computers that helped NASA put man on the moon. Okay, so that is where technology is. Our phones in our hands are so powerful, the processors. Um, adoptions going to take place faster than ever before. So can you imagine when microwaves came out, okay? And maybe someone was the first person in Ispingo Beach to have a microwave. And then all the aunties go to their house and they, hey, you got a microwave. How amazing is this? And then they go home and they tell their husband, hey, you know, we got to heat up all our food on the stove and this and that. And, uh, you know, this auntie got a microwave. We also should get one. And then slowly, you know, there's one model in the market and then a second model. And maybe, I don't know, Panasonic was one of those good brands in microwaves, I remember. And then adoption takes place. And show me a house today that doesn't have a microwave. Uh, I don't have one for health reasons, uh, which is fantastic, right? So for the last four years, we've not using using a microwave. But let's use a kettle as an example. It's innovation. A kettle was technology at that time. A uh, microwave was technology at the time. And when tech comes on board to make people's lives easier, it gets adopted at a certain rate. So things start off with small, low curve adoption. And then Metcalfe's law says, you know, at the moment, like a second and a third and a fourth person got it. And imagine you're the only person in the classroom out of 24 students that don't have a cell phone. You can't be in that conversation. You, if, if you don't have Facebook, you can't be chatting to the rest of the people on Facebook. If you don't have, uh, just say, WhatsApp or a Discord, or if you're not on Reddit, you're out of the loop. Yeah, that's that's pretty much true. And, and it goes back to the point we made earlier about how everything is being digitized. And there's a quote by uh, Mark Andreessen, who's like a world-renowned venture capitalist talks about how software is eating the world yeah and, uh, it's very true because it's literally transforming the way things are done if you think about it yeah. and uh, i think that's probably a great note to to end the podcast on and sure. uh, we'll pick it up some other time yeah let's have a chat next week and just cover some other topics uh, the one of remittance is quite interesting. I think we should head down there and just we do some research. You know, I think the figures like over 700 billion in fees that get paid out by Western Union in remittance or something like that. Maybe it's millions, billions, we can verify it. But let's talk about that next week. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. We really appreciate your time and hope to see you soon. Yeah, it was a pleasure to be here, Vana. Thanks so much. Okay. Keep well.